All right, folks, welcome to the Brock Lurie podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Tom Jump. Uh, I really like this guy. He's, uh, he's an atheist. He has his own uh, show. Uh, t- Tom, what do we call it? Tom Jump Show? Or wh- what do we do? P-Jump. P-Jump YouTube channel. Okay, the T-Jump YouTube channel. It's a very good channel. What I like about Tom is that he um, has a lot of guests on. He's not afraid to talk to those people who are religious. Uh, he doesn't uh, mind the debate. He knows his stuff. Um, I was a guest on his show, the T-Jump YouTube channel, and I thought he was uh, very well prepared, very thoughtful. And I thought, you know what? Let's have uh, let's return the favor. So he's a good guy. What I also like about Tom is that he doesn't cheat in his debate. Uh, what I noticed is that he will listen and also address the issue as opposed to, you know, unfortunately, some atheists, and I'm sure some religious people, too, who will just use ad hominem attacks. Uh, what I also like about Tom, and, and uh, this is something that we talked about when we had our, uh, I guess, video with you last time, Tom, was that uh, he always wants to first establish that there's whether or not there's a creator, right? And then discuss whether or not that creator is the creator of the, of the Bible, uh, the God of the Bible. Because too often it's conflated and it's uh, too easy to, to kind of uh, sidestep the issues of the day. So is there a creator? Uh, that's the first issue. And then, then we can discuss whether that creator is the same as the, the God of the, the Old Testament and uh, what the Christians call the New Testament. And for that matter, the Book of Mormon, right? So... Uh, welcome, Tom, to the show, and thank you so much. What I've said is that I'm going to do this more like an interview style as opposed to debate because, look, I, I was an atheist before, as you know, a, a very deep atheist, um, and I'm always interested in, in seeing whether I have missed something. Um, I always like to know also whether or not there has been some arguments that, you know, I just may have missed uh, in the old days when I was an atheist. So. I like to hear it. I'm constantly debating this issue, constantly looking to the issue. So let me start off with this. Uh, Tom, where, where did you uh, start with your atheism? Was, were you raised uh, religiously or did you always start as an atheist? Tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, I was brought up in a Christian household. I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. I was religious up until my 17, 18-ish range. Um, my transition really didn't have anything to do with looking into atheism. I was simply, I had major depression my entire life and was praying to a God who I believed was all loving and cared about me more than anything in the world, but prayed every day, morning and night for help with my depression. Nothing changed. So I just lost the ability to believe that there was such an all loving being out there. And so that was what caused me to lose my faith. And then uh, years later, I started to research into the philosophy as a different way to try and overcome my depression. And I started to learn about atheism and the different philosophical positions and saw some of the debates with the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right. uh, Hitchens, Harris, Dawkins, and Dennett. And right. I really liked their work. I identified and their arguments made a lot of sense to me. And so I, that's when I adopted the atheist label. And I've been researching and debating with theists ever since. Right. Uh, are your parents still around? Are they, um, and if, if so, are, are they, is there any sort of tension between you and them or what do you, how would you describe it? Uh, no, my parents were more concerned with the depression more than anything, because that was a bigger concern than anything. Sure. So they didn't really talk with me much about leaving Christianity. It wasn't really a big issue. So they're, I mean, they're 
in Pennsylvania, so several thousand miles away, a thousand miles away or something. Right. But we don't really talk about it much. All right. Well, that's that's great. You still have a good relationship with them. There's a lot of a lot of people that sometimes when one abandons religion or one's finds religion for that matter, it, it can be a source of tension. So I'm glad that that's not the case. Well, let's get right into it, Tom. Um, one of the things that I, I'm always curious about, and and it's in the first starting point is the issue about morality. So uh, we talked, we touched a little bit about this when you and I were on your your show, and we all agree that morality is a good thing. We want a world that we consider to be moral. The question is, what is moral, uh, and where does morality come from altogether? Uh, how would you take that? Right. So I think that morality is objective, but I don't think you need a God for it. So most philosophers agree that there is an objective morality, but we don't think that you actually need a God to ground the objective morality. There are many other alternatives that are presented in the field of philosophy. Um, the one I prefer is a law of nature, some something to, as a feature of nature that it results in the combinations of the laws of physics to produce morality in the minds of conscious agents. I think that's a more plausible explanation than a God. Um, and so I think that we can ground our objective morality from those kinds of emergent relations in the universe. And I don't think we actually need to say there is a uh, God anywhere involved in that. Okay. Uh, now, some people would say that uh, when it comes to morality, the idea is that we want we don't want people to kill each other. We don't want people to steal, to embezzle, to uh, to lie, uh, these sorts of things. Uh, but yet there's a sense that, and perhaps, you know, we've all felt this when, let's say you you lie to somebody and you feel this incredible sense of guilt that kind of descends upon you. It's a little different than, let's say, you go jaywalking, right, which is illegal. But if you jaywalked, you wouldn't feel like you're a terrible person. Or if you uh, went too fast in the on the freeway, you wouldn't feel like you're a bad person. You just did something wrong, according to the law. So um, how do you uh, differentiate between the two? Why? Is there a sense that we need this thing called necessary guilt, that, as I phrase it? Uh, no, I don't think we need guilt at all. Like there are many psychopaths who don't feel any kind of guilt, but can still understand morality. One example would be a Christian, David Wood. He doesn't feel yeah. any kind of moral sensations whatsoever, but he can still understand morality. So I don't think guilt has any basis in morality. Guilt is simply a feeling, a recognition of something we've done wrong or a feeling that we have done something wrong, but it's right. not required for morality. Even if we didn't feel anything, there would still be a right and wrong there. So it's interesting no, I don't you, think we need that. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up David Wood. He figures largely in my recent book because he is a fascinating man. He He would beg to differ with you. And again, I'm not... I'm not debating with you. I just, I just know, you know, having studied him very deeply, he is a psychopath uh, and he was a psychopath. And what happened just for background is that he decided that he was an atheist, that all that matters is uh, the survival of the fittest. And he decided that the best thing to do to kind of advance his own theory was, would be to kill his father and not only to kill his father, but to do so in the most gruesome way possible. So he proceeded to uh, approach him from behind, used a hammer uh, didn't kill him, but severely maimed him to the point of brain damage. He was ultimately taken to a mental institution, then ultimately served time in prison, uh, where he met a Christian. And at that point, he, he mocked the Christian and he said, yeah, you know, this is all nonsense. Uh, but uh, after thinking about it a little bit more, he became more of a believer and understood that he really needed something more than just 
his own mind. Uh, so he embraced the morality, but the morality of Christianity. And since then, he had, uh, you know, went got out of prison. He now is advocating uh, for Christianity against atheism, sees atheism as a very destructive force, and even says that he's concerned, and I'm not saying that you're saying this, Tom, or I'm saying this, but what he would say, David Wood, is that we are breeding a society of psychopaths uh, by taking God out of the picture. So it's interesting that you brought, brought him up. Uh, he, for one, as a psychopath, uh, would say that um, you need much more than, than just a sense of logic in order to do what is moral. He, he likens himself, by the way, uh, a psychopath, to somebody who is a colorblind person. He doesn't have the sense of empathy that, that you and I have. That's, the, that's one of the definitions of a psychopath. Right, right. That's why I actually brought him up was because the point is that you can have morality even if you don't sense it. So this, the feeling of guilt isn't required for morality. Right. And no, I, I understand. That from Christianity, but other psychopaths can get that from logical systems or philosophical systems. The point is that guilt isn't required for morality. Right. Okay. So, um, look, I understand and I appreciate that clarification. Uh, for him, he learned it. He had to learn in the same way that he had to learn. You, a colorblind person would, as he describes it, a colorblind person would have to learn that the, the light on top means go and the light on the bottom means stop or vice versa. I forget now which one is which, but you get the idea. So it's very interesting. Um, and for him and for me, this is a sense that if you don't have a sense of guilt, and I'm not talking about like the classic Catholic guilt or even the Jewish guilt. Um, I'm talking about the sense of what I have done is horrific, is very wrong. The crime and punishment sort of wrong from Raskolnikov and Dostoevsky, right? The reason why, Rask I don't know if you read Crime and Punishment. I did. Okay. So you know from Raskolnikov, the character there, that, that the thing that does him in, I mean, he's very logical also. He decides that he's going to kill his neighbor because she's useless. She's a drain of society. She ends up killing not only her, but her sister as well. And what does his image is not, it's not because he, he thought was it his landlord. Wasn't it the landlord? It might've been his landlord. Lady? That's true. But uh, in any event, uh, what does him in is not that he left any clues. In fact, the detective who's assigned to the case is a bumbler fool. Uh, and what ends up happening is that he, because of his sense of that, he's done something horrifically wrong and he just keeps on nagging at him, goes crazy. And then eventually confesses to the whole crime. And then it's only when he's in prison that he discovers uh, that uh, the, the beauty of, of God and the morality and, and the, the church of the Russian Orthodoxy. So this is the, uh, that's, that's the fascinating part of me. I think that we all have this sense of this, this big imposing anvil of, let's not use the word guilt, uh, of horrific wrong, right? This sense that I have done something horrible. And or you don't want to do something horrible. That fear of doing something horrible is something that I think holds people back from doing these horrific crimes. Um, that whether that's theft, whether that's lying, and more importantly, whether that's murder. So uh, I guess that's that's one of the topics I was uh, so curious about. And I, you know, to sum it up, you you say that we don't need that. We need it philosophically. We can get it philosophically. Uh, we don't need God to do so. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I don't think the feelings matter at all. I think it's true that morality exists independent of whether or not we feel it. So I don't right. think the feelings of guilt or the fear of uh, doing wrong really matters to whether or not there's morality. It can definitely influence us, but psychological influences happen for all kinds of reasons. Um, to talk about the story you mentioned, it's a, it's 
a good fiction, but it's not actually the truth because many people do kill and they don't feel that remorse, but it's still wrong. So whether or not they feel the remorse is irrelevant. One of the things that I, I uh, kind of evaluate, I'm, I'm very interested in numbers. I'm interested in probabilities. I'm interested in statistics. Um, I'm quite good in statistics. Um, that's kind of what led me partially to, to God in the first place. Um, and we could talk about the odds in a moment. But one of the correlations that I've noticed, and I, I dug really deep into this, Tom, they did a study called the Violence Project, and it was put up by the, the Los Angeles Times. And this was prompted by the uh, consecutive three mass murders that happened, mass shootings, rather, that happened in 2018. One of them was in Gilroy. I think one of them was in Pennsylvania. But either way, there was three in the summer of 2018. And it was pretty horrific. And they wanted to understand, are there any commonalities among these mass murderers, and for that matter, serial killers, uh, throughout history? And they went back as far as 1965. And uh, they came up with four different conclusions. One is that... Uh, they suffered, each, each one suffered something traumatic in their childhood. They had a very bad abusive childhood. Um, they saw something else among some other serial killer or mass murderer and decided to emulate it. Uh, and then, of course, finally, that they had access to guns or to something extremely violent. Those are the four things that they came up with. Lost in that, however, was something else that actually did show up in, in a very similar study by the FBI, no less, which is that none of them had God in their lives. So that was fascinating to me. Now, that doesn't mean that all people who don't have God in their lives are about to commit uh, mass murders or serial killings and so on like that. But what is consistent is that those who do commit those mass murders and those serial killers tended not to have God in their, in their lives at all. So there, was, there were attempts to make these people uh, into Christians in particular, but those uh, turned out to be false starts. They were not accurate. Um, so uh, wh what, do you, what do you say about that? Uh, again, it's not a proof of God one way or the other, but there's a correlation, and I'm not saying a causation, but it seems to be a correlation. Uh, that the top three were atheists? Well, that's not oh, all a correlation. Them. No, no, there's a long, long list, not just the top three. It's uh, every well, single... Actually, the vast majority of serial killers are religious, so... The vast majority of them are religious. Um, the most successful ones are atheists, which is typical because atheists tend to have a higher IQ, higher education level, um, higher intelligence level. And so they're better at usually whatever they're doing, which is why atheists have higher academic standings, uh, higher wealth, so, more so access I, to government. But, I wrote about this in my recent book, and I went through all the serial killers, every single one of them, and all the mass murderers for, since 1965, uh, and not one of them was a, a Christian. I mean, somebody, some people had described them to be Christians, but they weren't. Can you give me, I mean, I could be wrong, um, but because I thought I researched this pretty well. Can you give me an example of a mass murderer or serial killer was a, an, an avid Christian or Jew for that matter? Um, I can, I can just Google it if you want. There's tons of them, um, but the vast majority of them are religious. Like if you just take any genocide in any Christian nation, that's all Christians. Um, like, oh, I'll talk the, about that in a moment, but let's, let's stick now to the mass murderers and the serial killers. Um, what if that's, you um, genocide is a kind of mass murder. So I, I agree. Is, I, I agree with that. And we'll talk about that, but I'm talking more about the, you know, the, sadly the classic, uh, killings where some guy goes, you know, a nut in Las Vegas, for example, 
where he went about and killed 50 people, you know, sniper fire like, or what happened at Sandy Hook or uh, what happened in Gilroy, those kinds of killings. Uh, for that matter, serial killers like uh, Ted Bundy and Kaczynski and so on. Well, again, so if we just go to the prisons, mass murder is usually defined as four or more killings. Most of them right. are Christian. Mo most mass murderers in America are Christian. But I'm asking you for an example of that, Tom. I, 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 my, my evidence shows otherwise. Where can you show me an example of one such person? Um, I could just <clears throat> go to the criminal records. Again, if we just go to the federal FBI statistics, the percent of atheists is zero point something percent. The percent of Christians is like 60 something percent. Most murderers are Christian. Most mass murderers are Christian. This is not the ones that are publicized about because they're less successful. I look, you say the word most all, uh, quite a bit. I'm just asking you for one example. Again, FBI statistics on crime based on religion. That would be. Right. Okay. So the FBI so, study that I, I found said that specifically the contrary. They said that um, the one thing that was in common <clears throat> among all of these were that they were not religious. The, um, there was, however, a very small portion that claimed to be religious one way or the other. It was about, I forget the number, it's about 5% of them altogether. And more than half of those were Muslims. Uh, of the remaining Christian variety, uh, those were simply people that were construed to be Christians by their neighbors, uh, particularly Andrew Brevik, who was the famous mass murderer in Norway. I believe he killed some school children, served uh, only 21 years, which is pretty horrific when you think about it. But nevertheless, uh, he um, was more of an Odinist but somehow they decided he was a Christian as well. So, um, I mean, other than that, if you can show me somebody who actually goes to church and actually believes in God and believes in Jesus for that matter and was, was tight on that, on that issue, then, then let me know because I, I don't yeah, know. So I just, I just pulled up the data. Um, less than – so 0.7% of inmates are atheists in prison. And sixty something percent are Christian. So the well, vast get, majority I'll get to, of I'll get to that, but that's not what I asked. arsonists. I, I didn't ask that. I, every I will crime, get to that. I, I will get to that. But I didn't ask what the percentage of atheists were in prison. Okay. Well, well, this applies to every category, including <clears throat> murderers and mass murderers. I understand, but that's not that's not the question. I'm, we're talking about mass murders and serial I, killers. I'm, I'm addressing that. This includes mass okay. murderers. So, so of all mass murderers, most are Christian. Okay. I, I, I wanted names, but it's okay. We'll we'll move on. Well, one I, of the I, other I, one I of the other like, things we don't. If you look at the FBI data, it's just the total number. It doesn't give names. I, I could like go to the prisons and like look for people who've killed more than four people if you want. It'd take okay. a little more time. The FBI study that that I actually quoted and researched deeply showed exactly the opposite of what you're suggesting. Well, this, well, this is literally the FBI data, so your study is wrong. It's <laughs> okay. All right. Well, anyway, I, I, I dive deeply into this in my book, so I'm, I'm happy to to review on that. Look, we, we this is more of an interview. I'm not trying to debate you, and so I'm, I'm sorry if it's Sounds like I'm debating you. Now, uh, we, we did say that we'll talk later on about the um, uh, genocide nations, right? Uh, obviously, we think about Germany and Hitler first, and then Stalin and Pol Pot and all those bad boys. So what is your take? Because I remember when we spoke uh, before in your, uh, in your podcast that uh, your argument was that Hitler was a believer and a Christian at that. Uh, you also, argued, I think, what's that? Polytheist? Uh, I think he like, was a pantheist uh, at best, um, not polytheist. No, polytheist. no, polytheist. Like he believed in magic and miracles and he did research into all kinds of spiritual stuff and he was looking for like the, <clears throat> what's it, the thingy that you drink from 
the, the one Holy in, Grail. Yes, Holy okay. Grail. All right. Okay, but that's not that doesn't make him a Christian. I mean, let's not conflate these two things. There are a lot of people who believe crazy things. Uh, and pantheists are, you know, certainly not the same as Christian polytheist, which, you know, by he definitely that, was not a pantheist. He could not ever be qualified as a pantheist. That's not logically coherent. I, I disagree with you that that is a topic that I study deeply as well. And atheism kills, but look, I, I'm just, I want to, I want to ask more deeply. That's the, the simple question. Uh, you said before that countries that engaged in mass murders, uh, were Christians, I mean, and, and did so on behalf of Christianity. Am I wrong? Say that again. Uh, I believe that you had intimated or said directly that countries that had engaged in these genocides did so with the backing, uh, or, or sorry, as Christian nations, like Hitler was a Christian of some kind. Now you're, you're saying that that's not the case with him. He was a polytheist. Oh, there's, there's many of those. Yeah. Like all of the Nigerian countries, all of the genocides by Christian nations, the witch burnings, the crusades. Yeah. Those are all Christian stuff. Okay. Lots of those. Okay. So I, I was... I, I, I was expecting you to bring up the Crusades and the witch burnings. Do you know how many people died in the witch burnings? Um, no. Okay. Uh, do you know how long the witch burnings situation lasted? Mm. I believe it was several hundred years in total. Uh, actually, the witch burnings, which you're talking about, at least the Salem witch burnings, uh, a total of... Well, no, that's only one example. That's not all of the witch burnings. That's yeah. just one example. Okay. So a total of 19 in Salem uh, died, uh, and it was over a span of two years. And of course, the madness ended. It was wrong. So, it was horrific so stuff. So the witch burnings was from a period of the 1400s to the 1700s, a total number of deaths of thirty-five to 50,000 executions. Right. I don't, I don't doubt that. Um, but you're saying that that was done on behalf of Christianity. Yes, because it was literally read from the Bible that this is where they got this. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's interesting. So now that now we have to also argue, however, about atheism. So we look, my position is, and I, I'm, I'm sure that you disagree with it, but obviously communism was an atheistic enterprise. In fact, it was the core tenet. And that's not me saying it. It's it's Alexander Solzhenitsyn who says it. No, nope. no, I'm I'm quoting Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So that, just bear with me, and then of course I expect you to sure. respond. Uh, so Alexander Solzhenitsyn said atheism is not just a tenet of communism; it's the tenet of communism. It's the core aspect aspect of it. I would put it to you also that atheism was the core tenet of fascism, and uh, Hitler. And for that matter, most fascists uh, decided that um, Christianity in particular and Judaism, of course, of which they had no love or fondness, uh, was, were both despicable religions. They were feeble. They were weak. Uh, Hitler in particular seemed to be more impressed with Islam. This is all in his own writings. I mean, I, I don't need to convince you of it. It's there in his own speeches. So, uh, you know, look, in the in the great battle between uh, whether or not Christianity has created more deaths than atheism has created more deaths, I would put it to you, if we were to compare side by side, and in my chapter, Murder by Numbers, I do put it side by side, that atheism has killed far more people, millions, I mean, to the to the hundredfold than anything. Atheism doesn't kill anybody, so atheism isn't an ideology. So that's, like saying that's, an that, escape, that's an escape hatch, but I don't, I don't, no. I, I don't buy that. That's like saying, Tom, 
that uh, that safety belts are not seat belts are not necessary in a car. They don't kill anybody. Yeah, okay. No. Seat belts themselves don't kill anybody. I get that. No, no, no. no a lack no, of them not, don't right, kill right. them. But I wouldn't suggest not wearing seat belts, or for that no, matter. No, 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 not, no, not, I just want to. I'd like to clarify hygiene. that. So, so claiming that atheism is an ideology, or that atheism, as treated by everyone today, is equivalent to the atheism of communism, is like saying that. All religious people who have murdered ever is equivalent to Jesus or Jesus's ideology. The fact that some atheists do things and you equating that um, that belief of atheism, their particular belief of atheism with all atheism is called a composition division fallacy. It would be like if I said your religion is exactly the same as Islam for flying planes into buildings. It's called a composition division fallacy. The fact that some people use that label and associate it with some things has absolutely no connection to anyone else in the world ever. So like no, none yeah. of the atheism today adheres to that at all. So it, it's not an analysis. You're not comparing it to atheism. You're comparing it to communism or communist atheism. They're, they're particular. Oh, I, I, look, I, I understand what you're saying. And I agree with you that uh, your, your argument that atheism is not an ideology, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't buy it. I mean, we, you and I just simply disagree about this, but uh, well, it is, how, how me, could it possibly be? Like, well, what is the on, ideology? Let me let me explain. To say that atheism is not an ideology is like saying not believing in law and order is not an ideology, or anarchy uh, is not an ideology. So hang on, Tom. So this is you know there, there are certain things that if you don't do them, bad things will result. For example, if you don't brush your teeth, I can guarantee you eventually, very very quickly, in fact, you'll get cavities, right? So, uh, or or if you're an anti-vaxer, right? Those people are uh, people that don't believe in vaccines. Bad things will result from that. I'm a well, vegan. Actions. So it's so like actions, not brushing your teeth. Absolutely, uh, that leads to things. To me, like it's tomato, tomato. The absence. It's like work. a lithograph, Tom. Either you see it or you don't see it. You can see it in the negative light. You can see it in the positive light. Well, but what do you think? What do you think the word ideology means? Okay, this is not, this is not where I'm going. I want to also say, however, well, you said like, atheism is an ideology. Like what, it, what is it the is word? an ideology. It's 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 a belief system. And you hold on to certain aspects of it. Uh, where okay, you what believe, are the beliefs? The beliefs are that there is no God, that what is... That's not fact, a belief. Tom, you got to let me finish. Uh, what you, what, there is no God and that, in fact, uh, what orders the universe is random evolution. And everything happened that we see here in a random way. Uh, and everything is the product of randomness. That, that is an ideology. Um, and, well, and I, well, none of that is a part of, of atheism. Like that's not what atheists believe. I I, I disagree. I think that's exactly well, like, what atheism believes. Well, well, so, you, so I've got to, I've got to respond you, to that. You like, may you may have a personal belief that that is contrary to that. I get that, Tom. Well, no, it's not about wanna... me. I'm not. This is not about me. So so that's fine. You got wrong. Is that most atheists don't believe any of that? Most atheists are spiritual. They believe in something that, like a spirit or a uh, some kind of spiritual realm. Most atheists aren't the scientific kind, like I am. They do believe in spiritual stuff. They don't believe in evolution. Many of them. They don't believe in random processes. Most naturalists don't believe it's all random. They think that they're determined, guided processes, so okay. they're not random. All right, so, so what, most what of what you said. Wait, one sec. So, so most of what yeah. you said has nothing to do with atheism, and most atheists don't believe it. And the the not believing in the God isn't a belief. It, it's a lack of belief. You're not. It's it's not a, it's not a belief system. It's like not golfing is a sport, or not breathing your teeth is is, a, is an ideology. It's not. It's not not a belief. It's it's, it's a it's a difference without significance, in my opinion, Tom. Because not believing in going back to brushing your teeth will lead to serious consequences, right? Likewise, oh, hang on, Tom. Just just a second. Uh, I'm a vegan. Uh, you may not know that about me, but. I'm a vegan. I don't believe in eating animals, right? So 
And the reason why is because I, I believe that it's unhealthy. I think it's bad for the planet. It's bad for uh, cruelty to animals as well. So uh, th those are the things. So, But whether I, I call it an ideology or non-belief in eating meat, it's tomato, tomato to me. It's not as important. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here because we have so much more to discuss. But the thing is... Just to clarify, uh, like for me, ideology is important. Ideology is a positive set of I, beliefs that influence like something. And atheism just isn't that. There are positive beliefs. Naturalism is one. Uh, humanism is one. Communism is one. Those are all ideologies. Atheism right. isn't. Atheism is just a description that you don't believe in God. So that atheism isn't an ideology. Like evolution okay. is an ideology. Naturalism is an ideology. Atheism I'll take. Is, I'll take it. I'll take it on your side. So I, I. I don't want to quibble with you about that. Uh, but but I'm I am curious what you said about most atheists that they believe in some sort of higher power or naturalism. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. But to me, that's very interesting because at least when I was an atheist, uh, I, I went whole hog on it. There was no, there's no God and there's no substitute God. There's no uh, order to the universe. To me, it's, it was binary. And maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe, you know, and, and I, I actually like hearing what you're saying, Tom. But to me, the, the notion is that either there's, there's a God, a creator that has given structure to the universe and created life for us and including intelligent life, or there's not. It's one or the other. Um, so I, I'm curious your personal belief. Uh, well, well, two things there. One is most atheists are humans like most humans, and so they have spiritual beliefs like most humans. Okay. They just don't believe in a God. That's the one difference. They, there's many who believe in ghosts and spirits and fields of goodness, like, like a Buddhist kind of a Brahmin thing. There's lots of atheists okay. all over the world. Very few of them are scientific-minded like, like I am. It's, it's a minority. Yes, um, you are my position. Yeah. That's, uh, and, and, and that's a great thing. That's why I love having you on, on my show. Well, okay, so that's very interesting to me. I did not realize that. Uh, so what is your personal, what is Tom Jump's personal theory of the, the universe, the origins of the universe, and the, uh, the creation of intelligent life for that matter? Yeah, so I think that the universe, our universe as we see it, is a result of quantum fields and that time and space are emergent from other more fundamental quantum fields that existed before the Big Bang and created the Big Bang. I think that life evolved from evolutionary processes, which are a result of emergent phenomenon of physical forces that are not guided by any mind. Okay, so, but where does the spirituality come in then? I don't believe in spirits. There's other atheists do. Oh, okay. All right. So I, I really was more curious about your own particular uh, version of things. So let's, let's take on uh, your particular version, not, not to take it on, but just to get clarity, I suppose. Uh, one of the things that I'm fascinated about is this notion of irreducible complexity. You've heard of the expression, I'm sure. Uh, yep. How do you jive that with your uh, sense of random evolution? There isn't any such thing. There's no such thing. Okay. Just for the, the benefit of our listeners and, and your audience as well, uh, irreducible complexity, um, the concept is, and I'm going to say this in layperson's terms because I don't have the definition in front of me, is that uh, you have to have, it, it, you can't, when you reduce it to a point where you simply couldn't have something that didn't go along with something else. So example, a car, right? Uh, a car, if it just had uh, wheels, it wouldn't be able to drive. Um, it, you would need an engine along with the gas pedal, along with the steering wheel and everything else, they all have to work in conjunction with, an, with one another in order for you to call that a car and to have the benefits of driving that car. So that's irreducible complexity. Now in evolution, um, and, and maybe Tom, you disagree with this, but in evolution, there are circumstances where 
things have to work in conjunction with each other at the same time. They couldn't have kind of met up with each other one after the other once one part was built. Then another part comes in that kind of works very nicely with it. Example, uh, we have two eyes, right? So two eyes are necessary for stereoscopic vision. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily have a cyclops first and then the a mutation to have the second eye. Or for that matter, another example of is the operations of the cell. The cell you can't have without the operations of the heart and you couldn't have a heart without the operations of the cell. Um, so they have to work in tandem with one another. And that's just a, a situation of two working together. There can be, there should be actually thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands that have to all work together. Um, how do you jibe it? I'm not challenging. I just want to understand you. Yeah. So all reducible, what, uh, like Stephen Myers calls irreducible complexity is explained in the same way you build a stone arch. So a stone arch is like, um, stones that are stacked on top of one another in a big arch thingy and there's nothing in between it. And if any of the stones were removed, everything would collapse. You can't live without any of the stones. Right. Right. But to build a stone arch, you don't just put all the stones there together. What you do is you build a foundation and you then place the arch on top of the foundation and then you remove the foundation and then you're left with a stone arch. That's how evolution works. So evolution works by adding in features that are primordial features that existed before the heart before the eyes, before any of the completed phenomenon we see today. And those things before were very useful at the time. And as they become less useful, they get removed, kind of like how in the stone arch, you remove the support piece by piece. Or like scaffolding, so, for example. What? Or like scaffolding on a, on a building. Uh, I'm supporting your argument, Tom. I'm just saying like scaffolding, sort of. you, know, you, you, you need scaffolding of a building in order to build it, and then eventually you, you don't need it anymore. Well, well, right. But I'm saying that each of those, the scaffolding had its own purpose. It did yeah. something on its own. It wasn't just scaffolding. It had its own purpose. And so it became just scaffolding after the new thing evolved, uh, like the eyes or whatever. And then the scaffolding was removed. But before it was removed, it had a purpose and it was useful to the organism. So it's, that would be the only difference. But for example, one of the examples of irreducible complexity that is used is the butterfly and the caterpillar. Like caterpillars have no reproductive organs. There's no way for them to reproduce until they become a butterfly. So how could a caterpillar evolve into a butterfly? How could that possibly happen? Because they just don't have the correct pieces to um, be able to reproduce until they've gotten to the butterfly stage. So it's irreducibly complex that the butterfly couldn't have come about by evolution because, well, caterpillars can't evolve into butterflies because there's no way for the caterpillar to come about. But we know that caterpillars did actually have reproductive organs millions of years ago, and they lost them after they gained the ability to evolve into butterflies because they no longer needed them. So they had the scaffolding of the reproductive organs as caterpillars that couldn't become butterflies. But once they could become butterflies, they eventually lost the reproductive organs because they no longer served a purpose. So yeah. it's the scaffolding, like they had a feature, they evolved a new feature, and then they lost the old feature. Right. No, I, I get it. But that's, that's not really quite what, I'm, what I was asking. I was asking about the, the, really the notion of irreducible complexity, not where we get rid of things like the scaffolding that you just talked about, but rather that the, you need two things that, or at least two things that go hand in hand with each other. And to, just to go back to my car analogy, uh, you wouldn't just say, well, it was great that we invented the, the doorknob uh, for the, uh, or rather the door handle for the car. And uh, that was kind of invented on itself. And then, and then we uh, built a steering wheel and then with, oh, that's kind of, it might be convenient one day. Uh, no, it, it all comes together. It, it's built at the same time uh, and they all have to work together at the same time. That's the notion of irreducible complexity. 
And, I, you know, not to argue with it, I'm just trying to understand from you how you, because, because evolution has this lockstep fashion where you go once, once, one thing at a time, it develops, and then you have that uh, leading to something else, presumably, you know, just making things better and better. But it, it, I never, I have to tell you, Tom, I never was satisfied when I was an atheist. When I learned about irreducible complexity, I just couldn't answer it as well. Uh, I, I see you, you're trying to do that, but I, I just, I still don't see the connecting of the dots. Right. So that's why I brought up the stone arch example. The stone arch is made of like 10 stones and each stone is working together to build the arch. You remove any one stone, yeah. the entire arch fails. So this has 10 parts and you can make it bigger. You go hundred parts, a thousand parts, 10,000 parts. You can make right. a stone arch as big as you want. And each of the pieces are working together in tandem. And if you remove any one piece, the whole thing fails. So, so okay. you get all of the parts working together. Right. But you don't build them all at once. You don't, you don't just put them all into a stone arch immediately. What you do is you build a foundation, you build rocks. Ah, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. But, but then that, it, for that, that theory to work, it would have to then, and, and for that to happen randomly, then the one stone would have to know that it's going to be part of a larger picture uh, and that ultimately it would lead to this thing. And, and obviously the stone doesn't know that, much like the door handle wouldn't know that eventually there's going to be an engine attached to this, uh, as well as wheels wouldn't know that there's going to be, uh, I don't know, gas pedal associated with it to say nothing of the gasoline all the things that have to work together. So, all right. I, I think we, we beat that dead horse. Um, well, I, no, I'd, I'd like to respond to that. So like, well, we've got, we got five other things I really want to explore. And then we okay, only so have so much give me, time. Give me 10 seconds. So okay, 10 yeah. seconds, each of That's the stones fine. that are, that are built upon to get the stone arch had its own purpose. It, it didn't know anything. It was just useful in its own right for something before the stones above it got placed. So it didn't need to know that there were going to be stones above it. It was useful on its own. Okay, I appreciate that. Uh, so moving on to something very similar, the, the notion of fine-tuning. So obviously you've heard that phrase. I, I know we've discussed mean it physics, right? The universe? Yeah, the, the physics, yeah. The, the creation of the universe, and it appears to most scientists that uh, the universe is so finely tuned that to, to an absurd level uh, in order to uh, create uh, the creation of life and no less the intelligence of, of life. Uh, that if anything were even slightly off kilter to the one out of a quadrillion, quadrillionth percent, uh, we wouldn't have the universe as we know now know it. Um, the this was a conundrum to uh, Stephen Hawking and many other scientists who developed uh, the multiverse theory as a result in order to combat that the probabilities of that. Uh, I never found that very satisfying, uh, Tom, because there is no evidence for a multiverse for one thing. And it seemed like they didn't like the answer they were getting. So they, they kind of forced this new uh, theorem in order to increase the odds that the universe would be apparently fine-tuned when in fact it's not really that so fine-tuned. It's just, you know, if you take enough uh, billions of uh, universes out there, trillions of universes out there, well, then the chances of, of our having this universe uh, increase exponentially. I was never satisfied with that, especially because I don't think there's any evidence for it. Do you feel otherwise? Yeah, so a number of things there. Uh, first thing is that the multiverse theory is better than a god for many reasons. One is that in physics, you're not allowed to add in things that don't have a basis that has been demonstrated to be real. So like the reason we went with the multiverse is because it's a combination of um, vacuum states demonstrated in the Casimir effect and Goose early universe inflation demonstrated in observations of the CMB. Whereas God has a bunch of properties that have no basis in physics, um, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, um, eternal, non-physical mind. 
So God wasn't an option to try to explain the phenomenon multiverse was because it was just a combination of physics. Um, the fine-tuning isn't really a problem because the fine-tuning, for at least for the God debate, because um, in order to explain what fine-tuned the universe, you could just ask the same question, well, what fine-tuned God? Just like there are infinitely many variations of the way the universe could be, there are infinitely many ways God could be. Maybe God wanted a universe of just black holes or just unicorns or just puppies. Why? What fine-tuned the nature of God to make him make this universe and not any of the others? Well, Tom, so there could be... that, yeah, that's an excellent point. And it's, I, I want to agree with you on something. It is a very fair response to say, uh, okay, fine with your fine-tuning argument, but what about the fine-tuning of God? And this is, a, this is not a conundrum. This is one of those things where we simply have to accept, I don't know what happened before God. We, we do know that there's a God. Or we believe that there's a God. Uh, what happened to create him, that's a mystery. We have to know that we will never know everything, right? Just like, you know, I, 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 you, you and I were born in a certain year, right? I was born in 1963. Yes, I'm that old. But uh, what happened before, you know, I take it on faith that my that my mom gave birth to me. I mean, so I, my birthday is uh, September 18, right? So, all right, well, I, I, I take it on faith that that's what, where I was born. I don't remember that, right? Likewise, I don't know what happened before that. I don't know a lot of things uh, that have, you know, I take it on faith that all this history that we learned about World War II, about American Revolution for that matter. Uh, it's not even a question of faith, I suppose, but there are historical records, but we weren't there. And I just, we just don't know. We don't know exactly what happened uh, before uh, the first uh, uh, tribes, you know, created the first villages. We don't know what language they spoke. We don't know what it sounded. There's a lot of things we just simply have to accept. We don't know. So as to your fine-tuning argument regarding God, I get that. Uh, we would like to know. We'd like to know, for that matter, what happened before the, the beginning of the universe, right? I mean, that's a very fair question, too. But, I, but my problem with your answer is that it's not really an answer to me, at least, the multiverse argument that you just made is that it's it's a better argument than the existence of God, uh, but there's still no evidence of the multiverse. I agree with you that you can say, look, Barack, there's no evidence of God, but I don't think that your multiverse argument is much better. Uh, in fact, I think there's far more evidence by definition, by the probabilities, that there was a creator. Okay, now this is again the creator versus versus God being the creator. I think there's far more evidence of that of that creation actually being out there. So uh, because of the fine-tuning argument, and I, I think it's very difficult to, to get around that. I want to ask you now about evolution, generally speaking. Uh, one second, give me that 10 seconds to respond to that. So yeah, sure, sure. Go ahead. You said evidence by definition. I don't think there is any such thing as evidence by definition. But the reason the multiverse theory is better is because when you're comparing some unknown phenomenon, the best theory is the one that only uses parts that have been demonstrated to be real and not imaginary. The one, the multiverse theory only uses parts that we know for a fact are real that we can test in a lab, the Casimir effect and early goose goose inflation. Whereas God has lots of parts that have no evidence, have never been demonstrated, and that's why physicists don't use that hypothesis, and they do use the multiverse because it's things we know exist in physics. Okay, but but there is no evidence of of multiverse, so that's that's the problem that I have. I want to move on to the fossil record, and for that matter, um, and, and very related, how long. This is something that always bugged me when I was learning about evolution. How long does it take for an evolutionary adaptation to take hold, to, to become the new norm? Uh, so whether that's, uh, I don't know, changing uh, the color of skin uh, as a fairly minor adaptation to something much bigger, um, the creation of a hand, for example. How long does it take evolutionarily? 
Um, it can take as short as five minutes. It just depends on the environment. So, for example, if uh, a virus hits and kills off everyone in the the group other than the one person who's immune to the virus or the two people who are immune to the virus, well, then their genes are going to take over. So it just depends on what the environmental factors are and how successful one trade is over the others. Right. Okay. Uh, okay. F- five minutes. I've never heard that before, but I, I accept it. Uh, wh- what about uh, the, the concern that a lot of people are raising in, in the evolutionary debate that the evolution always seems to be, uh, you know, always approaching, approaching a progress, always an improvement of some kind. And I, why isn't it that it just, just turns into something either neutral or even descending? And for that matter, and this is the next question, why don't we see more in the fossil record of these strange anomalies as opposed to um, what, what we do see, which is we don't see these transition animals very much. We, you know, people claim that there is a, a transition between Cro-Magnon man, uh, sorry, Neanderthals to Cro-Magnon man, but but other than that, we don't really see uh, examples of three hands, for example, or I don't know, three eyes. Uh, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, three hands and three eyes were never really beneficial. I mean, we do see three eyes. There's lots of animals with a lots mutation. Of eyes, but a mutation would suggest something akin to that. I, I just pulled that out of my butt, but you understand. Uh, you, you could you could uh, also argue uh, I don't know that uh, you have a third a third ear you could or just one ear for that matter how 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 come we don't see those kind of strange mutations more frequently we do but they're usually in pairs they're usually because your body is mirrored it, it takes less energy to make a copy on this side and on this side so there's never usually like one of anything it's usually two which is why we have eight eyes and spiders and eight legs and octopus we do see multiple legs and multiple ears there are many animals that have four or five ears um we do see those all the time but every single species is a transitional fossil it's really strange that the creationists say you've never found a transitional fossil between that thing and that thing even though those are both transitional fossils between two other things. Um, oh, and so every time we find something, they're like, well, what's the transitional fossil between that and the other thing? Well, they're, they're all transitional fossils. But uh, we, we to, to answer your main point, we do see those. We actually, there's one great example of a fish in a cave which had eyes, eyes that could see very, very well. And as they evolved in this cave, they lost the eyes. They, they devolved the eyes because they were no longer useful in that environment. So we do see those all the time where you have one adaptation and as it becomes less useful, you lose it. Right. But okay. So those are examples. And, and, and to bring up your point, actually, um, I mean, the first thing that I would say as when I was an atheist is like, well, what are, what are you talking about? There are, there are people who have darker skin and lighter skin and people, I mean, like for example, the Nordic people, people from um, Norway and Sweden and, and uh, Northern Germany, for example, they tend to be taller. And the reason for that is because, uh, their bodies are elongating in order to get more sun, right? So I, I'm, I'm actually agreeing with you, Tom, here on this one. But that, that's the reason why they, they tend to be taller in the northern reaches, because you want to get more surface area for sunlight. Um, so likewise with um, darker people in hotter regions, right? You tend to see darker skin in darker regions. Um, but what doesn't answer, what evolution to me does not get answered is the DNA sequence, um, does the, the extraordinary complexity of the cell and how each cell is like a little universe unto itself uh, and in turn communicating with every other cell. These are the things that I find to be conundrums that would take 
I don't know how many billions of years before they would actually get into that position. There's so many things that have to work intricately with each other. Uh, talk about irreducible complexity, right? So I, I, that's where I grapple uh, with the evolutionary concept. I don't think, we, we now know, you know, contrary to what um, Darwin knew at the time, uh, we know about the DNA sequence. We know how complex that is and the programming that goes into it. So how do you, how do you relate to that? How, how do you respond to that? Uh, well, I'd say that all of the work in the field has indicated that, yeah, naturalism is true and that it came about from abiogenesis because those, that's the hypothesis that's actually making progress and making successful predictions and making discoveries because that's the one that is right. Um, and so, so I did want to ask, do you think when we do discover how to make a life, a cell, a living cell from non-living material, would that change your mind? Because we're going to do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If we could recreate... Uh, a a cell or just an amoeba for that matter uh, through uh, just natural even through in the science lab it, but it ha would have to be naturally occurring things like like they're trying to say with the primordial soup in the the ancient ancient days in the beginning of uh, life right if they well, I don't think that out, matters like that's one thing I did to want me, to, bring to me it matters a lot well I, well I wanted to clarify so yeah the ability to create life from non-life I think matters more than it doing the early earth environment because first we're going to demonstrate it can have about happen naturally somewhere in the universe and okay. then we'll try to figure out how it happened on earth so i think the first thing we're going to discover is just how to do it how to go from non-life to oh, life anywhere in the universe and then we'll be able to do it more specifically to the earth environment i i think they would have to recreate it in the primordial sense first before i mean you asked me what i believe that that was what what it would take for me to believe because i think i i'd be very surprised if we one day create life out of non-life uh, completely non-life. I mean, you know, nothing that's, or, you know, cheating in the sense of using some sort of carbon matter. In other words, to create a rock, uh, you know, life out of a rock or, and that, that would be something, but I, I just don't see that happening one day. But carbon I, but matter asking, isn't, isn't living. Carbon is, is a non-living thing. I, I agree with you. I'm simply saying I, I didn't want to conflate these things. Oh, gotcha. So I'm, I'm answering your question. I, 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 that would be very impressive to me. Um, but what we know is that scientists have tried many times to, to try to create life in the primordial soup sort of sense, and they have never been able to do so. So I, I don't know what to say about that. That's, uh, it's an interesting argument, but it's, um, it's never been done. And uh, with all our efforts to try to recreate that scenario, we've never created life out of non-life. So um, that's, that's, I think, a problem, and that was a problem for me. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is your own personal belief, and I appreciate you raising this. Do you believe, Tom Jump, that there was a beginning to the universe, or do you think it was static all the time? Well, there's a beginning to our universe, but I don't think all natural things had a beginning, no. So our universe had a beginning at the Big Bang, but there was definitely natural things before that. Okay. What, what do you, I'm just curious now, what do you believe was uh, in existence before that? the quantum fields that predate space-time that created space-time. Okay. All right. And you, and you don't think that God was involved in this whatsoever? No, I see no evidence to think that there is such a thing as a non-physical mind, but I see lots of evidence to think that quantum fields do stuff. Okay. Uh, let's see. We talked before when, when I was on your show, Tom, about free will, and that was one of the things that opened the door for me personally to um to accept that there was a creator and then ultimately to believe that that creator was the same as the god of the bible 
your response, as I, if, if I recall correctly, is that free will is an illusion. It's not really there. Um, first of all, do you still believe that? I assume you do. And secondly, uh, do you, on very related topics, do you believe in consciousness and self-awareness? Yes, consciousness and self-awareness is real, but free will is impossible as far as I know. Okay. Uh, consciousness is uh, a conundrum for many scientists that they still can't understand. Um, now, I, as an atheist, I would have responded easily to that by saying, look, you know, it, it's just a matter of time. The fact that we can't understand that right now doesn't mean that we won't understand it one day, right? Uh, but still, it's a conundrum. The, the sense of the me, the I in, in, in Baruch Lurie, the, the I in uh, Tom Jump, uh, meaning the, the letter I, right? Not the, not the physical I. Um, that, that is something that is such a conundrum for scientists. Where do you stand on that? And how do you feel about that? Is, is, it, is it explainable? Um, help me with that. Yeah, there's tons of conundrums in science. All of them are best explained by the things we have evidence that exist and not by making stuff up that we don't have any evidence for. So yeah, there's obviously a lot of things we can't explain. Okay. And so I, I don't see why that would matter. It's just we can't explain it. Therefore, God is just a, is an argument from ignorance. So obviously, there's lots of things we can't explain. I, I, I'm with you on that. That's the argument I would I would have made as an atheist. But it still it still troubles me because the the binary sort of argument to that, I mean, the, the corollary argument to that as well. Then it was created randomly. Consciousness is so complex uh, and so difficult to achieve. We cannot do it artificially ourselves. There's, we, we, have, we can only artificially create that semblance of intelligence and consciousness. It appears that Siri is talking to us and responding to us with its own consciousness and even says the word, it could be programmed to say, hmm, I don't know about that or let me think about that. But obviously it's just a, it's an artificial construct. So how does, I, I just, I'm trying to understand about how you explain the evolutionary adaptation to the point, to the point where we get consciousness, which you acknowledge exists. Uh, well, it's determined by physical forces, so it's just not random. It's a determined process that is emergent from other physical forces, kind of like how stars are emergent or tornadoes are emergent or hurricanes. It's a thing that results from emergent properties of determined physical forces, so it's not random. Okay. All right, I appreciate that. Uh, next thought is, who in your mind, well, let me ask you this different question. It's, it's related. Uh, where in your mind or what where does science come from people humans, humans made it up yeah I, I agree humans made it but more specific to that where where does the, the the notion of science and our love of seeking the truth and the beginning of the universe for that matter all these questions that we're now posing uh where does that come from originally does it come from um the, the greeks for example does it come from the romans because to my mind Science really was born with the university as created by the, the Catholic Church. Um, and I'm not a Catholic, I'm Jewish, right? Uh, it created um, the notion of seeking one truth. And the notion of the monotheistic God uh, developed the notion that there was one truth out there, uh, as opposed to the polytheists, where they were fighting among each other. They couldn't care less about the way that men uh, treated each other. Um, but this God, this monotheistic God, not only cared about uh, the way that man treated uh, man, but also the notion that there was one truth to everything. There was one beginning. There was one everything. Uh, there was a lot, one law of physics. And that's what um, spurred many uh, Catholic and ultimately Christians and Jews 
to seek out science in a sense of finding out God's truth. Uh, what do you have to say about that? Uh, definitely not the case. So science was invented as a necessity from survival of the fittest. So like someone invented an arrow, their culture won. They, they, they would take over every other culture. And so as we discovered certain technological things about the universe, you gained a significant amount of power over other people. And so there became this arms race of discovering things about the universe because the one who got the best arms would win and own everything. And so there became a selection factor for us to pick the learning humans as the ones that would reproduce more. And so it became an ingrained part of human evolution right. that we desire to learn and to grow because it's something that gives us the ability to have control over other people and over nature and survive more. So it has nothing to do with Christianity. The Christianity was the incarnation of the modern church or the modern scientific method, because it was just who was in control at the time the modern scientific method was invented, had nothing to do with the God. Everybody did this. And well, I don't know you what you mean when you said you do, polytheism. You do. Wait, one second. I don't know what you mean when you say polytheism didn't care about people. Like the golden rule originates from Hinduism before Christianity or Judaism were ever invented. So oh, polytheists know. cared more than Christians did. Well, I, I don't. I don't know about that, Tom. I, I don't think you could say that. The poly polytheism. Uh, you know, obviously, we we know about the Greek gods and Jupiter and uh, Saturn and so on. Uh, Zeus. They, 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 Hinduism they predates war. all of those. I, I understand. They all they, they all were at war with each other. They they all you know they, they descended and and have sex with uh, humans and have half gods and all. You get the idea. They, they were very little uh, interested in uh, the morality among men and the code of conduct for that matter. So. I'm not saying that there weren't codes of conduct in the, in predating Christianity. Of course not. I am saying, however, and I and I I would like you to admit that that most of Christians, sorry, uh, some most of the great scientific discoveries that there was an explosion of scientific discoveries as a result of Christianity and Catholicism and Judaism, where you look at uh, these incredible inc inventions and discoveries, uh, Newton and Galileo, and uh, yes, even Galileo. Uh, Mendel, um, and of course, uh, Francis Collins and the Genome Project, and uh, and then the Big Bang, uh, discovered by no less than a Belgian monk. Um, so many of these, in fact, the vast majority, and I, yes, the vast majority of these were discovered or created uh, by Christians. And again, you could say, you know, I, I suppose I would say in response, Tom, well, you know, that was the the modus operandi of the day, that was a default structure. They happened to be Christians. And so now you're tying, making a correlation where it's not a really fair correlation. In response to that, I would say, no, these people, most of them um, wanted to discover their discoveries because they felt it was to bring them closer to God. And, and they want to share their discoveries with everyone else. And this is said by Newton. It's said by um, Georges Lemaitre, the guy who discovered, uh, and you know, the, the origins of the Big Bang, he invented um, it. He didn't. He didn't discover it. He invented it. Okay. Well, whatever. Discovery, invention. Uh, fine. I, I think it would be discovery, but whatever. Uh, the point is that he did so because he knew, in his own mind, that the Bible said that there was a Big Bang, and that was his map, as it were. And he said, "I'm going to find it," and sure enough, he found it, much to the chagrin of Einstein who felt that Georges Lemaitre was, was on the wrong path, but Georges Lemaitre was right. His own uh, theory, uh, Georges Lemaitre used Einstein's own theory of relativity to prove that there was a Big Bang, among other things. It was, it's fascinating. Anyway, I, I think that the, um, uh, the, the sheer number of Christian and Jewish scientists out there who 
uh, went about finding their discoveries and to some extent inventions uh, is so legion that it's hard to say that science as we now enjoy it uh, did not benefit greatly, in fact, predominantly from Judaism and Christianity. And that's demonstrably false. Like they just attributed it to religion. It was already an inbuilt psychological thing that all humans had. The people who make the most discoveries are the ones who are the most technologically advanced. Um, unironically, the, the greatest goat herders and greatest farmers and greatest chicken farmers were also Christians at that time. That doesn't mean it had a, like chicken farming evolutions had anything to do with the God. It just means that they were the most technologically advanced at the time. And so they used post hoc reasoning to try and justify it from their religious perspectives. We know for a fact that these happened many scientific discoveries happened way before Christianity happened. The fact that most of the modern stuff is only due to the fact that they happened to be in control at the time and be the majority at the time. And right. if there's another majority in the future, then they will be the ones to attribute it to whatever ideology they think is correct. Right. Well, that, that's what I said before. I mean, I think, I think you're right in that you're arguing exactly what I would expect it. And that's what I used to argue, that it's the default uh, religion. It was the kind of the community around. And this is, they were imbibing that in the mother's milk. And, and to, to associate that Baruch with a Christianity is just not a fair correlation. But well, that's the problem. clarify that, I, I'm 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 just kind of mirroring your your point, but my right, concern, I just wanted to make a clarification. Um, yeah. This has been proven. We know for a fact this is an evolutionary feature. We can see it in other animals, and so the fact that this feature of desiring to try and discover things is something we know had nothing to do with Christianity. They just post hoc contributed it to their belief in God. Well, I don't know about that, Tom. Uh, I, I think that you, you got a problem with that argument because the the, the huge jump in science and scientific discovery. Uh, was so exponential after the advent of Christianity in particular and, and Judaism to a lesser extent uh, that it's hard to not say, wait a minute, there's a, this advent of Judaism slash Christianity and had this enormous jump in science. Likewise, I mean, in a very similar argument with capitalism, capitalism really took off uh, in an exponential way uh, in the 1860s when the capitalism from America was unleashed and now we see these extraordinary inventions and everything else. You could say that just happened to be, but there's the correlation is so strong that one, one ultimately leads with the causation conclusion. But finally, on that point, Tom, uh, <clears throat> you look at these Christians uh, and these scientists who develop these, they, they, they themselves are saying over and over again that the reason why they, they made these discoveries was to, to be closer to God, to find God. It, it didn't even, it, it, you know, a lot of your things that you're saying, you know, they're all good and well when it, it's for the discovery of the arrow, uh, the, the creation of a better shield. I'll, I'll even argue that point for you. Uh, there's a lot of things uh, to make a telescope or make, make binoculars so you can see the enemy better. I get that. But there's a lot of science that is utterly unimportant, or at least at the time it's unimportant. Like, who cares whether a certain galaxy might be 100 billion light years away? That, that won't affect us in any way. Uh, in, in the future. We don't, we don't care about black holes. It, there's a lot of things we, we learn anyway, regardless of whether it might be useful to us on an evolutionary basis, right? But That's yet, also due to evolution. So evolution uh, okay. allows us to expand in any direction and then the ones that are the successful survive. And so yes, science, we have desire to learn things about all kinds of stuff, whether it's useful, because occasionally we discover things that are really useful and those do very well. So we just, this innate built desire to discover is important to humans because evolutionarily sometimes that gets us a lot of rewards. So, so yeah, those are all explained by just evolution. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, I look then why don't, I mean, I, I'm going to say rhetorically, why don't the other animals 
uh, the, I'm using the phrase other animals because that's an atheist uh, approach. Why do animals uh, not have that same sense of discovery? They, they, they are uh, living today um, as they did yesterday, as they, they did with their generations in the past. They don't even know their own, the previous generations. They won't know their uh, generations to come. Um, and they survive. You know, the, the leopard is, is surviving, uh, you know, um, the cockroaches survive. They don't need this inherent sense of discovery. That seems to be unique to humans. And I guess the question to you is why? Um, they do. Other animals do have this. This is why we see animals learning how to use sticks and things to hunt that they weren't before, which is actually a relatively new thing. It hasn't always been this way. Animals do learn and discover. It's just slower for things with a smaller brain capacity. Well, with all those billions of years that we've had, you would think that the caterpillar and the butterfly would ultimately evolve to something akin to the human. I mean, at some point, no? That, that, that's no. a concern I have. I mean, of all the animals, only humans seem to have these incredible differences, not just the, the, the capacity to discover, but the capacity to appreciate beauty, the, the, the concept of free will. I know you reject that, but I, I don't. Uh, the, the concept of, um, uh, of, of, well, what am I just going to say? Uh, of beauty and love, for that matter, the concept of a sense of the future and the sense of the past, uh, the, the notion of history, the, the uh, I, and the notion of science for that matter, it is so unique to the human animal that you one has to scratch one's head and say, why are we so different in that regard? In many ways, animals are, are wonderful that we have so many animals because we, we get to see the differences between us on the one hand and they on the other. Uh, well, that's really strange because animals have all of those things. Like appreciation of beauty is actually really easy to detect. We can just measure the serotonin levels when people, when animals listen to music or when they see certain scenery. We notice that, oh, look, they're much more relaxed. They have a much more release of this certain set of chemicals in their brain, just like we do when we experience beauty. The reason we experience beauty, like one of the famous beauty studies was um, in hospitals where you have half of it's facing, half of the hospital is facing a parking lot and half is facing uh, open field, the people right. who are on the open field side healed quicker yes. because they experienced beauty. And that's purely because of evolution. If they're right. looking at something that is more comforting. Yeah. Them, at, at the same time, Tom, I'll, I'll, I have two dogs. I, I doubt they'll ever look at a sunset, no matter how beautiful it might be and say, Hey, Fido, what do you think? Isn't that an awesome sunset? Okay, that's one thing. And then secondly- That's not beauty. So, so that okay, doesn't uh, matter. Well, I, I think it is beauty. That's just, that's the kind that's of just an example of one thing which we experience as beauty, but beauty itself is a feeling in the brain and animals do get that feeling just like they get okay. all the other feelings humans do just I, to I, a lesser extent. That's your definition of beauty. That's not mine. Um, another thing that I would uh, demur to you on is this, you know, you, you, you say they have the appreciative music. That's- that's a far cry from actually, for example, creating music and understanding the nuances of music um, that, that we humans have. So it's, it's a far different cry. And I, and I would dare say that uh, our love of music and our creation of music is, is hardly necessary for an evolutionary point of view. Likewise, our appreciation of beauty, the sunset kind of beauty that you, we just talked about, is not necessary for, the, um, for our evolution. Animals do create music. They're called birds. Okay. Now that the birds create music for the sake of calling each other, they have unique sounds, but that's not the same thing as a symphony. It and is. I think it I, is. It is the okay. same thing that we All do. Right. Well, we'll, we'll agree to disagree on that, Tom, because I, I just don't think you can say that seriously. 
Uh, well, again, because our music, all the, all that music is, is a series of patterns that makes us feel a certain emotional sensation. And we're doing that deliberately, whereas animals do it evolutionarily. It's the same thing. They're both creating music in order to create an emotional sensation within us. We just do it artificially because we have bigger brains. If birds had bigger brains, they would do it too. It's not like a complicated thing. It's just a different brain pattern. Okay, Tom. I understand. Uh, now, what about humor? I mean, humor is... Uh, fairly unique to, to humans, as far as I nope. can see. Oh, hold on. Nope. I, 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 let, let me go through my little thing, and I know you disagree. Um, but the Jerry Seinfeld, or, you know, take your favorite comedy du jour, uh, comedian du jour, uh, and then kind of explore with that. I, I would say to you that there's, you know, <clears throat> what is the need for that kind of humor from an evolutionary point of view? You would never say, you know, why did Fred die? Why, why did Fred's uh, ancestors die? Well, he wasn't funny enough. Right. It's I mean, I'm being funny to for the sake of, you know, articulating a certain point. I don't see that. Uh, I think that that animals play. I think that's, uh, you know, clearly uh, evident. Uh, You can see my two dogs and they play uh, with each other all the time. I don't think that's the same thing as humor. Um, There's a depth to that that I don't think can be explained by evolution. What do you have to say about that? Uh, in 2009, research showed that relatives, including chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and orangutans, all produce laughter-like sounds when tickled, as well as they wrestling and play chasing. That suggests that humor is our ability to laugh. Like, came from humans and great apes. Uh, the last common ancestor, 2015, scientists showed that chimpanzees make laugh faces just like humans do. Dogs are known to have a kind of panting and laugh that is suggestive of humor. It's not only in humans. Okay. All right. So I, I you know, I, just to respond to that, I would say, I, I think your, uh, your equation there is very, very um, attenuated at best. I, I remember arguing with a, an atheist once, not you. Um, and I talked about the creation of civilization and that humans, you know, our, our ability to create civilization is unique to humans. He argued, what are you talking about? Ants? I've seen whole civilizations created by ants. I said, okay, I don't think you can take that seriously. I'm not going to take it seriously. It's, there's just no no comparison. Look, well, I think um, civilizations are in like chimpanzees and other large social animals. I mean, oh no, they, they have groupings, they have social orders. Yes, I, I agree with that's, that. Different. That's what civilization that's is. Ours is just more advanced. All right. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the. Cons- this is this is more a question I have for you than than a challenge, Tom. Uh, the more we learn about science, the more it seems to jibe with. Uh, what we learn from Genesis, okay? And I'm, when I talk about Genesis, I'm talking about the, the Hebrew translation of, of uh, the, the original Hebrew. I speak a good deal of Hebrew. Um, there has been some conflations and mistranslations of Genesis, but we know, for example, much to the chagrin of atheist scientists at the time of the Big Bang, that there was indeed a, a beginning of the universe. So that's like the, uh, the first obvious go-to thing that I would say. Um, we know that um, the paleontology has shown us that the um, arrival of life on Earth uh, more, or less is, more or less matches the claims of Genesis in terms of water, for example, being the first environment for life, um, and then eventually animals going on land. They even talk about the dinosaurs. They don't call them dinosaurs, they call them the large reptiles. Um, so where's your take on that? What, what do you, what do you think about that? I'm sure you disagree, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious where your argument is there. 
Uh, yeah, so pretty much everything in geology and evolutionary biology disagrees with everything in the Bible. Like it's it's been wrong about pretty much everything. Like humans, not first. Adam and Eve, nope, definitely not first. Um, oh, Genesis doesn't plants, say that. Plants Genesis does first. not say that. This does um, not say that. No, it says life comes first from uh, from the sea, uh, from the water, and then eventually, um, the, eventually the the mammals came later on, and then eventually Adam and Eve. So, I, I mean, I, I just know the Bible. Pretty right. Well. So, so the consensus is, is that the Bible is literally wrong about everything and that in every consensus of oh, every no, yeah. Let, let's not, it, Tom, that's not a, you know, you argued this before you said the consensus is, and that's, yeah, it's not the appropriate debate tactic. And I no, think no, no. So, that, so if, right? if you say that's not what the Bible says, and I say, nope, the consensus says you're wrong. Like your opinion on your interpretation is just your opinion. Well, okay. What's, what's so, called, one, one sec, one sec. I just want to clarify. Yeah. So what you're doing is called ad hoc reasoning, where you're taking ambiguities and trying to make it fit the science, which anyone can do with any book. When we actually take the data and we actually take the Hebrew, it literally fails. That is that is why it's not taken seriously in any of these academic fields. That's why I bring up the consensus, because when you do read this from an academic perspective, it does not work. Okay, so uh, look, one thing we do know is Genesis says what it says, right? Uh, and Yes, it says what it says. That is true. Exactly right. So we can agree on that. We can also agree that paleontology has shown us uh, that the arrival of the animals have, have arrived in a certain order. I put it to you, you look at Genesis, they match. Uh, and it's uh, to me, that was a concern. When I was an atheist, it didn't make me uh, a believer right away, but I thought that was an interesting coincidence. But I thought, okay, it was a coincidence, including the Big Bang, of course, which now everyone acknowledges. But back during the Big Bang days, uh, and I'm, I'm old enough, Tom, to remember when there were still challenges in school. I learned one year that the uh, universe was static. I had always been static. I learned the next year that indeed there was a big bang. And then there was another teacher who told us that it was static. It went back and forth like this, like ping pong until uh, the fifth year or so when, when eventually it was, you know, big bang was the big bang and that's the way it ever happened. Tom, it's, it's been a pleasure um, talking with you and your insights are always so appreciated. I like the way you think in many ways um, we think alike. Uh, we are always seeing reason and statistics and probabilities I came to God through science, uh, through probabilities and statistics, and, and through logic. Um, your science, probabilities, and logic led you the other way, and that's fine. But we are of the same mind uh, in the way we approach this. I'm with you. I, I, I never liked it when, when somebody would tell me, I found Jesus, and I just opened my heart, or I found God for that matter, I just opened my heart, and that was good enough for me. Uh, I, nah, I, don't like, I don't like that. <laughs> For me, I had to be convinced from a scientific level, and I was convinced, but uh, I understand your, your position. Let me ask you this. Do you, and this is the final question I have for you, I, I doubt, I have doubts all the time about whether God is real. I feel very strongly that God is there, but every once in a while, I think to myself, hmm, I don't know, and then I eat uh, you know, tiramisu at a great Italian restaurant. And I'm back to believing in God again, right? But just without being cheeky, I just want to ask you, do you ever doubt? Do you ever think that there may indeed be a God? Um, not in the kind that's perfectly good. So I have zero doubts that there is definitely no all good God. Could there be a designer to the universe who created everything? Possibly. But it's okay. definitely not a perfectly moral being. So I don't have any 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 doubts at all that if there is such a being it has no interest in us whatsoever so for me the doubts come in about 
like what happens in the afterlife because the afterlife has nothing to do with a god there's many different possibilities that may or may not have anything to do with evolution and so that that's the part where i have doubts but not about a god as much no all right that's very fair Tom Jump, you are a pleasure to uh, to discuss uh, these very important topics. To me, it's the most important topic to talk about uh, in, in the universe. So um, I, it's really a, a pleasure, and I hope to have you on the show again. And I'd be delighted to appear on your show again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me on. I really appreciate it. It's always nice to talk with you. All right. You too, Tom. Thanks a lot, and God bless. Take care. Bye.